Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that we could come to you in the name of Christ to guide, to direct, to strengthen, to lead us in the study of your word. Your word has been given to us that we might know who you are and what it is you expect of us. And so, Father, I pray that we will have insight and understanding that you will truly be our teacher today and you will help us to grasp the truths of the beginnings of this universe and who you really are as our creator as well as Savior and Lord. So guide our thoughts. Lord, minister to each one of us according to your plan and will in the name of Christ. Amen. On the outline, page 2, under Roman numeral 2, the outline of the book of Genesis, last week we began to look at the first verse of the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God, and that's as far as we got, in the beginning, a time when it all began, when God created the heavens and the earth. It's kind of interesting to know that there have been those who've attempted to give us the parameters all the way from 4004 BC, as we noted last week with Archbishop Usher, to, of course, your evolutionary scientists today who will tell us the earth has been around at least five billion years. And so those are the outside parameters for the possible date of the beginning. We discover that the fourth word in the verse is God. In the beginning, comma, God. The term there, if you've, if you've looked it up in your, one of your study guides, you'll know is the word Elohim. This term certainly means the majestic, omnipotent, uniplural God. And there are many who will say that it, of course, refers to the Trinity. And most of your commentators who are conservative evangelicals will say it refers to the Trinity. Some are not certain that that can be proven from the word itself, such as Calvin. He argues that, uh, you know, you might want to say that, but you can't prove that specifically from the word itself. But the word El, God Almighty, in the plural is Elohim. And although there are those who argue for the use of the term as the plural of majesty, like you might refer to the king as our majesty, it seems very clear to me at least, since God is portrayed in scripture as the triune God, that that is built into the term as we see it here. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit present in this creation time. Now what's interesting also is no attempt whatsoever is made to define God, to explain him or to tell us anything about it. There's no theogony here, no descent of God, how he came about or anything of that nature. It simply begins in the beginning, God. He's acknowledged, he's assumed, he is there. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, we read this. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. That God is seen in what he has, when he has made. And I think I mentioned to you last week that I was talking to one person who was, well, I think it was Karen, right here, Karen Tomfer was saying uh, a few weeks ago that you were sitting watching the sunset and your father, not your father, uh, maybe it wasn't you. <laughs> I know it wasn't your father. Here he comes right now. 
anyway, the father was watching the same sunset, and the person who knew the Lord could see God in the sunset, but the father had no concept of God in the sunset over the sea. But God is clearly seen in the existence of the human soul as well as in the physical creation. But it's only through Scripture that we really begin to discover who God is. As we study intensely through the Word of God, we begin to pick up His attributes, we begin to understand something of the nature of God, the triune God who was involved in creation. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, we read this. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was made out of things which are visible. Not made out of things which are visible. God the Father was present at the time of creation. And most of us assume that just from the way the, book, uh, the first verse in Genesis is worded. But if you'll turn to Colossians chapter 1, Verse 16, we read, For by him, this is Christ clearly from the context, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It, it's clear statement that Paul is making in Colossians that Jesus Christ was present at creation. By him all things were created. And then, of course, we all know the second verse of the book of Genesis, and the Spirit of God hovered over the deep. And we'll be looking at that verse in some detail in a little bit. So we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all present at the time of creation, at the moment in which it all began as far as you and I are concerned. In the beginning, God created. The fifth word is created. And those of you who have studied this and have your lexicons or whatever know that the word for created is the Hebrew word bara. And it's used only in connection with God because it means to create out of nothing. And no one can create out of nothing except God. There's nothing that you or I can create, right, out of nothing. If we paint, we use a canvas, we use colors. If we are a photographer, we use a camera and film and all the rest. We don't create out of nothing, but God did. God simply spoke and the worlds came into being. So the term is used only in connection with God. He literally spoke and the universe came into existence. It's hard for us to grasp such an idea, isn't it? Space time, matter, and energy. Those four characteristics of the universe came into existence by the spoken word of God. These are things which you and I can measure. We can measure space, we can measure time, we can measure energy, we can measure matter. And that's what science is all about, probing into these things. And yet there was a moment when none of that existed. There was no space as we think of space nor time, nor matter, nor energy. God brought it all into being at the moment of creation. Now, I think it's important that we think about this, not only because it's here in Genesis, but because, as we read in Colossians 1 and in verse 17, we're told that 
He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things hold together through Jesus Christ. The universe is held together by him. And if he were to cease to be concerned about the universe, it would simply disappear. You probably are aware of the fact that science is constantly probing, trying to get smaller and smaller, get to the uh, further down into the microcosm and find out, you know, that we got the atom. We finally have proven that there was an atom, even though Democritus and Empedocles and many others postulated the atom 2,500 years ago. Science has finally proven that there's an atom and, and, and gone beyond that into subatomic particles. And it seems they keep finding more particles and smaller and smaller entities. What holds it all together? You and I are familiar with the fact, I think, that opposites attract and likes repel. That the opposite, you know, the North Pole and the South Pole, you can bring two, a South Pole and a North Pole together of magnets and they'll attract, but two North Poles will repel each other. And so it is in electricity. Positive charges re reject positive charges and attract negative charges. And yet when you think of the core of an, of an electron, uh, that is of, of an atom, what have you got in the core of an atom? You've got a nucleus which is filled up with protons, all of which have positive charges. And yet they hold together. Why? It's inexplicable by what we know about science. And yet it is God who holds all of this together by his great power. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, we read in Genesis chapter 1. He created Shamayim and Eretz. Shamayim refers to anything you want to consider from the atmosphere all the way out to the starry universe. It's a very broad term, heavens. The term Eretz certainly uh, refers at least to the earth, but seems to re refer to all matter also. All the planets, all the suns and things. But the primary one that we're concerned about and the one that the passage focuses on is this planet Earth. So this continuum that you and I live in, we live in a continuum of space and matter, of time and of energy. Th this is really the extent of our awareness, isn't it? You and I can some get some kind of perception of space we certainly have some kind of perception of matter and of time. <laughs> All we have to do is keep looking in the mirror and we have a perception of time and, and of energy too. <laughs> we seem to run out of it sooner <laughs> than at other times when we were maybe younger. Now, that we should know and believe that God created the heavens and the earth. I think God provided that not just that we might have an understanding of that as a fact in our mind, but God provides it to us as the basis for our faith. God is building our faith from the very first chapter of Genesis so that as we move on from there, our faith will be strengthened because we have a God who is almighty creator of it all. Let me read to you from Psalm 121, a very, very familiar passage, but I think it, it fits here. I will lift up my eyes unto the mountains. From whence cometh my help? My help comes from the Lord, who what? Who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The God who is the creator of the universe is the one who takes care of you and, and of me on a daily basis. Does he have the power to do it? It's the creator of the universe. 
And the passage goes on to say that he's ever vigilant. He never slumbers. He never sleeps. Remember the account of Elijah on the top of Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal? What is it that Elijah said to the prophets of Baal as they were dancing and cutting themselves and trying to get Baal to hear them? He said, well, cry louder. Maybe your God's asleep. Maybe he's gone on a journey. <laughs> I mean, obviously, Elijah was uh, giving them a bad time. He knew their God was not real. But the God who is the creator is the God who is always here. And he's always aware of our needs. And, and that's part of what this account in Genesis is telling us. He's always there, he's ever vigilant, and he's got the power to do anything and everything that needs to be done in our lives. Another familiar passage, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Sometimes we forget, as we read this very familiar passage and often quote that 31st verse, that it's based on the fact that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not get tired. He is almighty. And so, as we study this first chapter of the book of Genesis, we're not looking at something as an exercise in, 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 in our mental powers, as just trying to give us some kind of a generalized background. But, but it's to give us a strong faith in the God who is able, and the God who is here, and the God who cares. Now, it's kind of interesting to me that scientists, your astronomers particularly, are probing out into the universe and you've probably been catching the little burbs that keep coming out in the paper about what they're discovering or think they're discovering out there. And certainly optical telescopes do get a good vision out there, but radio telescopes probe much further. And with radio telescopes, they now say that we're probing out to close to 20 billion light years, which is a number that goes beyond our ability to comprehend. You know, 20 billion light years, 20 billion times the speed of light for a year? I mean, that's an incredible. I mean, light travels 186,300 miles per second times the number of seconds in a minute times the number of minutes in an hour times the number of hours in a day times the number of days in a year. And then you multiply that by 20 billion, and of course, you know, the computers all go psh, trying to figure it out. But that is what they say is the distance they're probing to out there. And they're still finding no limit to the universe, no end to the universe. In the intervening space, no one has yet found the throne of God. In fact, you remember the Russian cosmonauts as they went up there? It said they sailed around the earth and said, we didn't see God, so we must not be there. Is God out beyond the limits of the universe? We believe in the transcendence of God, that he's greater than his creation. Does that mean that, he, that his throne is out beyond 20 billion light years? Is there a limit? Is there an edge to the universe? You know, if you press 
Einsteinian thought enough, you end up with a very complex type universe, you know, the double compound curve type thing, and look out with a powerful telescope and watch the back of your head, you know, as it goes around the light, <laughs> bends around the universe. It, it's very complex and, and very confusing, even for those who are into higher mathematics. I think the answer is not in distance, but in realms, right? Every once in a while, an author comes up with a novel idea about a story about a parallel universe. And it's a universe that exists within this universe. It's just that it's in a different dimension. And so we can't see it or perceive it, and they can't see or perceive us. And that kind of makes your mind go bong, bong, you know. But really, isn't that the way it probably is? Uh, all of us have read, well, I shouldn't say that. Some of us have read Peretti's books on the spirit realm as it impacts our realm. And even though that's based on a lot of imagination and some scripture, uh, isn't it not possible that the spirit realm here dwells right amongst us, but in a parallel universe, you might say? That the realm of God's heaven is here, in the, in the general sense of whatever here means, and, and we just don't see it or perceive it because we only can perceive space, matter, energy, and time. We can't perceive the non-space, non-matter, non-energy, non-time of God's universe, of God's heaven, of God's throne. When Christ went up from the Mount of Olives into the clouds, where'd he go? Did he go out to the edge of the universe, to God's throne out there, or did he simply transfigure into the heavenly realm, which exists here, all around, everywhere? I think probably as you read through Scripture, you'll be more impressed that the latter is true than the former, uh, to try to believe that God is way out there somewhere. No, God is here. God is everywhere and his throne is around us. Well, let's look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. By the way, we will not approach the book of Genesis in the same way where it takes a day and a half to go through each verse. Otherwise, <laughs> we'll be here until the Lord returns, and maybe beyond. <laughs> Hopefully not. But these are really critical verses, and this whole first chapter is very, very, very critical, I think, to us. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. We have already, with that verse, reached the point when major efforts have been made to try to harmonize science and scripture. I don't know how many of you have, have read the, the multitudinous books that have been published on science and the scripture from many different points of view. But the idea that life came and that the universe came into existence naturally as opposed to supernaturally is not a new idea. As I mentioned to you a few minutes ago, men such as Thales and Democritus and Empedocles and Leucippus and others who lived at least two and a half millennia ago taught that life came up from the waters and that you and I are ultimately the result of life coming out of the sea. They taught that there was a mechanistic evolution, in fact, in effect. That little particles that they couldn't possibly explain, but called atoms, were actually the, uh, the basic building blocks of everything around us. The walls and you and me and the chairs are the, are the product of these things. And of course, they couldn't prove them or disprove them because they had no way to see the microscopic world they called them invisible and indivisible. 
these little atoms. Who could prove them wrong? <laughs> but behind this belief, by the way, the atomic theory was not accepted by Aristotle, and that's one of the reasons why it was not perpetuated on into later thinking, because Aristotle was so eminently influential on thought as it developed in the West and in even in the Muslim world. But it was basically nothing but speculation until about the 18th century. From about the 18th century on, the, the belief in a mechanistic evolution has been based on what are called facts, or at least theories that have come along. In the 18th century, there was a Scottish geologist by the name of James Hutton. Now this is on the top of the page three of your outline. E, Science and Scripture, Genesis 1-2. Number one under that, James Hutton. James Hutton, as I said, was a Scottish geologist. And he wrote a book entitled Theory of the Earth, which was published in 1795. And in that book, he proposed two rather radical theories. First of all, as you see it there, the Neptunian theory. And that was that the rock layers of the surface of the earth as you see them were almost all put there by water. Now opposed to this was the Plutonian theory that the rock surface was the product of the upwelling of hot rocks, you know, volcanic activity, and, and that's the way the earth's surface was uh, prepared. But many had looked at the rock layers and found them in nice parallel layers and had found fossils in them, and so they argued, no, that they must have been laid down by water. And so this was an argument that he proposed. The only thing of it was, before this many had thought that, but they simply assumed, obviously, that it was those were put there by the flood of Noah. I mean, that's the logical explanation. But his argument was, no, they weren't put there by the flood of Noah. They have been put there over a great eons of time. And in order to support this, he proposed the theory of uniformitarianism. Now, the theory of uniformitarianism is absolutely critical. It's, it's rock-solid foundation to the whole pyramid or structure of evolutionary thought. Without this theory, you cannot have modern evolution. Because the argument, very simply, it says the present is the key to the past. That is, everything that you see, all the processes which you see at work today on this planet, are the same processes that have always worked and at the same rate they have always worked. So as you see the mountains eroding away and the valleys being carved and the volcanoes erupting and the deserts blowing away with windstorms, that's the rate it's always been, which means then for the great valleys to have been carved and the great mountains to have arisen that you have to have eons and eons and eons of time. Can you imagine how much time you've got to have in order for that to be true? and rock layers that are hundreds, maybe thousands of feet thick, which must have been uh, placed one on top of the other through eons of time, couldn't have happened overnight. Couldn't have happened in 10,000 years. Therefore, the theory of uniformitarianism is the very basis for the postulation of an old earth. And upon that has been built now the various theories, particularly having to do with radiometric dating, your, your various uh, radioactive dating series, to try to give antiquity to the rocks of the earth. And of course, the whole idea of an index fossil. You find this particular fossil in a rock, and it means wherever you find that fossil, that rock is that old. 
how's that fossil? Well, it's as old as that rock. And you know, you can kind of go around in circles after a while <laughs> with uh, trying to, to prove exactly what's happening here. Now, it's very important for us to understand the cultural milieu into which his book was published. The Theory of the Earth was published in 1795. 1795 was, was sort of a, just past or close to the apex of the Enlightenment. The period of time went, which swept Europe and swept the United States. And, and in Europe, it had much to do with the French Revolution, where they even put a, they took a prostitute out of a brothel of Paris and, and, and took her along the, the roads to the, to the Cathedral of Notre Dame and enshrined her as the goddess of reason. They dethroned God and put a human being on the throne. You see, that's the Enlightenment uh, tended to focus on rationalism, upon human beings' ability to think and to understand this universe. And so it came at a, at a perfect time for acceptance. Now, had it come earlier on, at a time when, when faith was, was held by a, a larger percentage of the population, it, it might have just been a very minor book. But it came at a very at a time when it was very widely accepted because this particular theory of uniformitarianism, for example, was very comforting to those who wanted to reject responsibility to an imminent and holy God. It reminds me of Lucretius. Some of you may have read about him, who was a, a poet, but he, he was a philosophical poet. And, and he wrote basically that you must eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, and when you die, it's gone. You're, you're, you're extinct. You're extinguished. So, hey, live it up while you're in this life. And this is the way many people want to think. They don't want to be responsible to someone who is looking at them and, and taking a measure of how they are living. And so a book like this gives the ability to say, hey, I don't have to worry about it. There's no God. Or at least if there's a God, he isn't really caring. Judaism was very prominent this time, you probably know. And deism believed in a God, but he was a God who was, who was not imminent. He wasn't here. He was out there. And he started the universe and got everything going, and then he stepped back and said, it's a great job. You guys take care of yourselves. And it will all come out okay in the end. And, and Jefferson and, and uh, Franklin and many others were of that persuasion. They didn't believe that prayer really made a, a great deal of difference other than it was nice poetry to impress each other. But it didn't impress God because he wasn't going to change anything anyway. And so the book was published at this appropriate moment in time. Now what's interesting, if you look at the next point on your outline, number two there, there was a younger contemporary of James Hutton, a man, a French naturalist by the name of Georges Cuvier. Now he studied the fossils, and he studied the rock layers, and he looked over the earth, and he came to a different conclusion. He said that these rock layers must have been laid down in some great catastrophe, such as the flood of Noah. Well, that had already been postulated before, and many had believed it. They just didn't assume anything differently. But Cuvier was a man of great prominence. He, he was a worldwide respected scientist. And he is the, considered to be the founder of modern paleontology, the study of fossils. And he looked at the fossils that he found in the rocks. And to him, they, they were the story of a catastrophe, not of eons of time of slow piling up of the layers and the collecting of the fossils. So we might say, why is it 
that Hutton's theory was the one that was accepted, and Cuvier's theory, who was a far better known scientist than Hutton, was the one that was accepted? Well, the answer lies in the third point there, Charles Lyell. Charles Lyell chose to accept Hutton's teachings of Neptunianism as well as uniformitarianism to be the very foundation for what became the pivotal book in geology of the 19th century. The very uh, foundational teaching of 19th century geology. The book all looked to as you know, the primary source, the most important source to check in. And that was published in the 1830s. Now, Lyell, his work became the Bible of a young man, a British naturalist by the name of Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin carried Lyell's books around with him just as Alexander the Great carried the Iliad around with him. It was his Bible. It was his talisman, if you will. It was his guide. And as Charles Darwin went to South America and to the Pacific world, and as he took his long voyage on the HMS Beagle and, and looked at the different species and fossils wherever he could find them, he kept relating them back to Lyell. He would accept no other option. He kept going to Lyell. Whatever Lyell said, that's got to be the way it is. And so he built his theory within that particular framework. He found obviously evidences of an old earth, evidences of uniformitarianism, because this gave him eons and eons of time into which to build his theory of natural selection. Because that's the very powerhouse of organic evolution. Now probably if you've ever read about these men in some detail, you know that everything wasn't really totally up and up. Alfred Wallace was a man who was following the same basic theme over in Southeast Asia, and there was correspondence between uh, Darwin and Wallace, and, and Darwin knew Wallace was getting close to publication, so Darwin hit the pages quickly so that he could hit the press before Wallace did because he wanted, of course, credit. This is one of the problems you face in the scientific community, uh, this, this desire for fame and prestige, which is what generates most of these publications which you see coming out all the time. Now, again, why would Darwin have been that influential? He was just a British naturalist. He was a man who actually started out to be a theology student, but decided that wasn't the way to go. Well, there was another individual. I didn't put his name on here, but some of you have heard of Thomas Huxley. Thomas Huxley was an eminent British biologist on his own, but he was the popularizer of Darwin. He was the Asimov of that day the man who took science and made it understandable to the common man. And Huxley, who lived almost through the uh, 19th century, took Darwin's works and put them in a very popularized form so that the public could read and understand and become very impressed with the work of Charles Darwin. Darwin's theory of organic evolution, based upon Lyell, whose work was based upon Hutton, and the whole theory of uniformitarianism became widely accepted in the scientific community, as, particularly as you get into the 20th century. Now, it has been highly modified, and there have been some today who reject Darwinianism completely, and they go to a 
to a different kind of evolution, a kind of a giant leap type evolution, you know, chicken lays egg out, hatches lizard type evolution. Some have gone to this simply because they are not finding the, the intermediates that are needed. The so-called missing links just aren't there, for example. And so they're, they're moving to this idea of giant changes that occur almost instantaneously. But this theory that life originated naturally and has evolved to higher and higher levels over billions of years is still the primary dogma of the bulk of the modern scientific community. However they explain it happened, that's still the basic dogma. Now it's stated of course as fact, but it is not fact, it is theory and it cannot be proven to be fact just as you cannot prove creation to be fact. As the Institute of Creation Research tends to do, they keep using the word, it's non-falsifiable. You can't test it in the laboratory. You can't prove it to be true or you can't prove it to be false. It's a matter of faith of what one chooses to believe. Does one choose to believe that he's the product of organic evolution? When he dies, it's all over? Or does one choose to believe that he's made the image of God and one day he will pass into eternity and walk forever with the God who is his creator? One offers hope and the other offers hopelessness obviously. Now, intimidated by the scientific community, some Christian theologians and scientists have tried to harmonize science and scripture by compromising with science. And one of the primary efforts of this has produced what you'll notice on there in under number five responses, the gap theory. According to this, it says in, in Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then there's a gigantic gap of horrendous length of time, and then in, in verse 2 it says, and the earth was formless and void. The gap is between those two verses, and into that gap you can pour all of the geologic column, all the way from the Precambrian to the present. All those ages, including the, uh, the, uh, you know, the Cretaceous and the Triassic and, and the period of time of the dinosaurs and, and, and the time of the invertebrates who dominated the world supposedly at some point in time. All of this can be put into that gap. And that very well harmonizes science and scripture. There's no com uh, competition there. There's no problem there because, yeah, whatever they say is true. It's just God did it. And this is how... God did it. And Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 explains the destruction of the earth that came when Satan fell. Satan was thrown out of heaven, he came to the earth and he caused ruin. That God created the world perfectly to begin with and then it became ruined. And then from verse 3 on you begin to see God's recreation. This is sometimes called creation, ruination, recreation theory. Now this particular theory accepts the antiquity of the earth accepts basically all that science has to say about geologic history and about the evolution of life. But there's some problems with the theory. First of all, it has no biblical support. There's no place in scripture where you can, you would think something as vast as uh, four and a half billion years in the history of the earth ought to have been recorded somewhere besides in a gap, besides in a moment of silence, if that were really to have taken place. Secondly, I'm told by Hebrew scholars that if you read the flow of Genesis 1, 
two, verses 1 and 2 that it just flows smoothly from one into the other and there's no implication in, in the Hebrew uh, syntax that you could have a, a break, a gap between the two verses. They just flow together naturally. Now, of course, that, that could be said to not necessarily prove anything one way or the other. But the third point is very, very telling. If we believe in Scripture, if we believe it is the divinely inspired, inerrant Word of God, then when we come to the third point, we have a great big problem, and that is the problem of death. If life evolved through billions of years of time, from this primordial sea where lightning was striking and amino acids were formed and they kind of got together and created a protein which, you know, and you have these long chains of things that just kind of ooze together. If this happened, it has to postulate trillions of deaths. All these things had to die. And they died and they died for billions of years, they died. But what does the scripture say about death? Turn, if you will, to another familiar passage, Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. It seems rather unlikely that if the world was destroyed by the power of Satan before man was created, that sin could have been said to have entered the world before or at the time of Adam and Eve's sin. It would have already been there. The evil presence would already have been there permeating everything. And, you know, it could be argued, but the death that's being discussed here is only the death of, of eternal death, the second death. I don't think that that can be said. The implication here is not only eternal death, but physical death. Death came as a result of Adam and Eve sinning in the Garden of Eden. At that moment, this world was corrupted and death entered the world. Prior to this, there was no death. It was a perfect world that God had created. So really the gap theory, in, in my opinion, is, is based upon no solid foundation whatsoever. It's just an attempt to not have conflict with the scientific community. A second theory which has been put forward is the so-called age-day theory. This theory holds that the creative days of Genesis were not 24-hour days, but were geologic ages. That each of the six days was one of the great periods of geologic time, was millions, maybe billions of years long. And so it's just simply a compression of, of the slow process of life. And I've, I've read books that show, well, you know, that's exactly how life would have evolved, you know, from this form to that form, and human being would be the last one to come along because he's the highest level in the evolutionary chain. This theory, of course, accepts that the earth is billions of years old and that life did evolve again. The problem with it, of course, is going to be seen later on when we talk about what the word day means in in Genesis and elsewhere in Scripture. But this has been accepted by many. Uh, some of you have heard of the American Scientific Affiliation. The American Scientific Affiliation is a Christian, a group of Christians who are scientists who are basically theistic evolutionists. That is, they believe these things we've just been talking about. 
and they believe they, they don't want to try to deal with a young earth. They believe in an old earth and in evolution, just that God was responsible for it. It was nat natural or, or immaterial or accidental. It was God guided in its development. A third theory is kind of interesting because many have found this to be the answer in their own opinion, and that is the revelatory days theory. In this particular, according to this particular theory, the days of Genesis chapter 1 are not 24-hour days of creation, but 24-hour days of God revealing what he did to Moses. So it took Moses a whole day to grasp what God did in the early epochs of time up through the creation of light. That would be the first day. And took him 24 hours to kind of get that down and, and to digest it and then to record those few words there that we find in Genesis chapter 1. But that really what happened again was that it all happened the way science interprets it to have happened. And it was just explained to Moses in this seven-day period of time. Now, many find that to be very appealing because that way the scripture can be true and science can be true in, in their particular opinion. Now, as I said before, these theories are basically the theories that are set forward by your theistic evolutionists, those who, who want to compromise, uh, you know, accommodate science within their understanding of scripture. Now, there are a couple of other theories I want to mention briefly also this morning that are generally set forward by creation scientists, those who do not want to accept the ancient earth uh, or the theory of evolution. One is the ideal time theory. And you may have heard of this. This is very intriguing. And uh, there's a lot of it that, uh, you know, it's, it's really quite uh, uh, interesting to think about. And this is that God created everything at a mature stage thus creating everything with an appearance of age. Now, when you think about it for a minute, how did God create Adam? He created him out of the dust, and, and, and there he stood. Now, was he an embryo? Did he have to go through all of this development? No, he was a full-grown adult male, standing before God as if he were, what, 30 years of age, maybe. I mean, if you walked up to Adam, you'd say, hmm, you look like you're about 25, 30. I'm just assuming, you know, I'm... I think he was a mature adult, and the same with Eve. I mean, God didn't bring Eve a little girl baby. He brought to him a full-grown adult female. And to us, they would have appeared to have so many years behind them, right? And when God said, let the earth bring forth trees and grass, did God just go out there and sprinkle a bunch of seedlings? And wait 100 years from the grow up, or did God create 100-foot-tall, 100-year-old appearing trees? Did he just cast out a great forest that looked like it had been there for 500 years? Yes, the chicken came before the egg. Hmm. <laughs> so the earth and all that was within it would have the appearance of having been here for a period of time. Now, we might argue, yeah, but it only looked like it had been here for 100 years because that's how all the trees look. Do we know that? Did God create the original trees with rings? Did God create Adam and Eve with navels? You know, that's been argued. <laughs> really? They have argued that. And according to one tradition, 
that Muhammad, when he visited the uh, church at Antioch, he was very turned off by the fact that their theo theology was all wrapped up in things like that, arguing whether Adam had an evil or not, you know, as if that were important. That may be legendary, but at least that's what <laughs> some have uh, purported turned Muhammad off to Christianity. But you think about that for a minute. We, you know, we don't believe God as being a trickster in any way, but how else would you do it? And thus he could have created a planet that looked like it had been here for a long time too, right? With mature mountains and mature valleys. He didn't necessarily create a flat earth and then start shoving up the mountain ranges and start gouging out valleys. But with all of this already there, rounded hills, jagged edges, all these things which would indicate great processes that could have been happening in times past. Now, as I said, it's a kind of an intriguing theory when you think about it. Lastly, and these are not the only theories. I'm just presenting you with some of the most widely accepted theories. There are some others that are interesting, some others that are kind of ridiculous. But the last theory is the one that's most widely accepted by your creationist scientists, and that is the literal 24-hour day theory. This theory holds that Genesis is an absolutely straightforward account to be interpreted as you would interpret any other passage in Scripture except what is specifically prophecy. That the earth is probably not more than 10,000 years old. That God created each kind of creature and that there has been variation but no evolution. And of course, various ones argue that where does kind fit in to modern biological taxonomy? As man has classified, I mean, you go back to the, the Swede Linnaeus, and he sort of put the modern classification system on its current track. But is that, was that a God-inspired classification system? No. Well, what really is a species anyway? The argument could be that, you know, you've heard of the kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species, something like that. Uh, some argue that the kind is, is really quite high in that level. It wouldn't be kingdom or phylum, but it might be as high as order, which is kind of a broad category, category of creature. Uh, others argue for other levels. It's quite obvious that it can't be species specifically as we know species today because we have seen various modifications and subspecies that have come. And, well, look at what man's done with the dog. You've know? you got St. Bernard and you've got Chihuahua. And they're all the same creature. Theoretically, they can interbreed. Same way with cats and, and many other creatures that man has helped along in their ability to vary. So where, where, where might it be? Well, we don't really know. But certainly, the big problem is if you believe in some kind of a cross-transmutation, where are the in-between creatures? This has been the big problem of modern geological science is trying to find the transition fossils. And every once in a while they find one like Archaeopteryx, which is sort of a feathered lizard, at least it looks that way, uh, and, and they will argue, well, here we got one. But you know, if billions of creatures have died and billions of creatures have been preserved, how come we look so far to find one little one that can possibly, and besides, it doesn't make any sense anyway, does it? Does a creature halfway between this one and that one have any kind of an advantage in this life? The idea of, of beneficial mutations is that you have an advantage. 
But does a lizard with a few feathers have an advantage over a lizard with no feathers? No. Does, does, does a, uh, a fish with teeny little legs that can't really do anything with it have an advantage over a fish with no legs? Probably not. So when you think about it, there's no sense to it at all. It's illogical. And the reason you don't find any transition fossils is there ain't any. <laughs> now, obviously, the creation scientists account for most of the fossils through the, through the Noahic flood. And if you uh, were to go down to the Grand Canyon, you could get two opposite interpretations of the Grand Canyon. You can get the U.S. Natural Park, Park Service interpretation, which of course is going to be eons of, of evolution, or you can get creation scientists' explanation of how these layers were put down in the Noahic flood and how, because of the various densities of the materials, they would fall out in this particular way and, and the size of the fossil, uh, its body weight and everything would cause it to fall out in this particular pattern. And it's up to you to choose. It's, again, it's a matter of faith. Who, in whom do you want to put your faith? Not a matter of proof. What's going on right now up at Mount St. Helens, for example? where they're studying Spirit Lake and they're discovering in Spirit Lake things are happening in 10 years that they used to say would take 10 million years to begin to happen. And they have found on Surtsey, the island just south of Iceland that erupted about 30 years ago, just came up out of the sea. The things have happened on that island which they argued would take millions of years and it's happened within 25 years. And so what we're finding are that there are processes that happen far more rapidly than science has been willing to admit. And so the book is not closed by any means, one way or the other. Scripturally, this theory has the fewest problems, literal interpretation of Genesis chapter 1. Scientifically, of course, it has the greatest problems. But then you have to determine from what point of view you're going to interpret science in the so-called geologic column. If you ever study the geologic column in, in detail, and I have because I've taken I don't know how many courses in geology, and this column is the product of the belief in uniformitarianism. It's the belief in organic evolution which has produced the column the way you find it. Because the various rock layers in this column can be found in different orders in various places in the world. This is no place in the world where you find that column like that. And you'll find places where it's reversed, and, and you know, old ones are sitting on top of young ones, and they'll explain that as a thrust fault or something else. You see, it's just not a, what I, the argument is that it's not an open and shut case. The first line of Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The first line of Genesis 1, 2 reads that the earth was formless and void. Now, don't laugh, but the Hebrew here is tohu wa bohu. Yeah, it sounds like some phrase from Africa or something. These terms in their definition imply unreality, emptiness, futility, waste, chaos. These are all part of the understanding of that phrase, tohu wa bohu. Now the term tohu alone, T-O-H-U, as transliterated in English, is found several places in the Old Testament. One of them is in Job 26.7, and I'll just read the important phrase to you, where it says, God hangs the earth upon tohu. And that's been interpreted in English to mean nothing. God hangs the earth upon nothing. So the earth was nothing <laughs> and void, it says in Genesis 1-2. 
The term bohu, on the other hand, only occurs in connection with tohu. And you might say, hmm, why is that? In Jeremiah 4, for example, Jeremiah is prophesying concerning the destruction of Judah at the hands of the Babylonians. And he said, I looked on the earth and behold, it was formless and void. Exact same phrase is from Genesis 1-2. Now he's not looking back at this period of time. He's simply saying that in the prophecy that I see God showing me, the Babylonians are going to lay waste to our landscape. Chaos is going to be the result. Emptiness, futility, because of destruction at the hands of the enemy. So it seems quite clear that the purpose of putting these two words together is for poetic intensity. Tohu va bohu, you know, kind of gives that sense of really strong statement of how empty and futile and chaotic the situation really was. As a result, one of the famous commentators of Scripture, uh, W.H. Griffith Thomas, says or uses the tr translates these two terms as unformed and unfilled. They sort of go together too, don't they? Unformed and unfilled. Sort of that poetic connection between the phrases. Calvin, on the other hand, takes and says that the words can be translated shapeless and empty. So what is Genesis 1-2 describing? The raw clay that God had in his hands from which he made this perfect world. A dark, amorphous mass from which God created paradise. It reminds me of Michelangelo. Some of you have literally seen in the flesh or in the marble Michelangelo's David. 14-foot tall image of this man David just after he had, or just before, whichever, he had slain Goliath. Fabulous work of art. I mean, to believe that a human being could do that you know, is incredible to me, to put such feeling and emotion in a piece of stone. But what did that stone look like before Michelangelo's chisel came to it? It was just kind of a rough piece of marble. You look at it and say, yeah, it's a rough piece of marble, an amorphous mass. And yet in the mind of Michelangelo was this statue which he was able to carve with such beauty. And I think that's what we're looking at in Genesis 1-2. This is the amorphous mass that God has created, and now he's going to create paradise, the work of the hands of the master. And he would create paradise into which he would put Adam and Eve, from which you and I have descended. Well, we will... Well, let's... let's Let's finish all the way to the bottom there. What was it that probably pulled this amorphous mass together? Probably gravity. Probably gra God created gravity at that moment. Let me turn, if you will, to Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22. And the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. From everlasting I was established. Now he's talking about wisdom here. From the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hill, hills, I was brought forth. While he had not yet made <clears throat> the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, and he made firm the skies above, and the springs of the deep became fixed when he set for the sea its boundary, 
so that the water should not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. This particular verse or passage seems to imply the creation of gravity, which pulled this amorphous mass into the perfect sphere, or, well, it's not a perfect sphere, sphere as you know, spinning on its axis, it kind of gets thrown out at the equatorial region, but spherical shape, pulled into this spherical shape, which then also pulled the atmosphere into its spherical shape, and then put the waters into their proper location by the gravity and the spin of the earth. That seems to be the first thing God did just before he said, let there be light. The spirit is hovering over the face of the deep and bringing gravity into existence and creating from this amorphous dark form this beautiful blue marble, as sometimes it's referred to, planet Earth.